everybody. This is Judy Thompson, the Director of Clinical Education at the Association for Vascular Access, and I'm welcoming you today to the I Save That podcast, and it is officially fall, and that means it is conference time. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor today, Covalon. Join with me today. I have Michelle DeVries and Dr. Jack Ledun. I'm so excited to have these guys here to talk with you, talk with me, and hopefully you'll find it informative and a little bit entertaining. Without further ado, I'd like to bring them onto the show. Welcome, guys. Hey, hey. <laughs> John. Hello, everybody. Hey, Jack. Thank you. Thank glad you. For to, being glad here. to be on. Glad to be on. So we we tossed around quite a few ideas for this podcast today. And Jack, I'm gonna let you lead the pack. What, what, when you go around in hospitals, I know you go all over the world, all over the country, and you go pop in hospitals, whether you're invited or not, and <laughs> you go see what's going on. You round in the ICUs with docs and tell us a couple of the things that are generalized across every hospital you see that need to be improved. I'll be glad to, Judy. Essentially, there's a uniform set of findings to the point where I feel I can tell people what goes on in their hospital without having to go there anymore. And I'll put these out there and you guys tell me if it, um, if it resonates. So basically, and these aren't the hospitals that have vascular access board certified people in them or in, in charge. It's kind of like, it might be big name institutions, famous places, but I've found that the hospitals have underinvested in vascular access. And this leads to, you know, four uniform findings. Number one, the number one finding that I, that I see is that um, nobody's in charge of vascular access. In other words, if you walk into a hospital and you say, um, who's in charge of infection prevention, they would send you someplace. If you said, you know, who's in charge of surgery, they would send you to the Department of Surgery. If you say who's in charge of vascular access, it's like, you know, like, no, they won't know what you're talking about. At the front desk, they will not know what you're talking about. And because nobody's in charge, it leads to unsupervised residents performing suboptimal procedures with outdated equipment. Uniformly, we find that. And that is not like, that is not the way forward. And then next thing, and surprisingly, they have a collapsy problem with the, you know, with the unsupervised residents, you know, not doing it. I mean, like, so I was, I was in one hospital and I was trying to get an intern. I, you know, a, a, a fellow was going to do a procedure and I was going to proctor him from outside. And I tried to get the intern to scrub in just to get, you know, what, what little experience you can. And the intern told me that Dr. Dunn, I'm good. I've done this 12 times. So I, I was going to tell him, I, I was going to tell him I've done it 12 times a week for 15 years, but I figured I'd be the crotch to the old guy if I said that, you know what I mean? And, but, but the intern said to me after we go, Hey, I can really see the value coming from the side of the bed rather than the head of the bed. So he learned something by watching the procedure, but he, he wouldn't scrub in, but that is the number one finding that um, nobody's in charge. Nobody's in charge of vascular access. And like, you can imagine what flows from that, not having somebody in charge and their equipment becomes like 20 years out of date. A lot of time I find, you know, like 
the first description of the jugular vein at which usually we say it's attributed to Dr. English in 1969. What I find that jugular vein practice is 1969 plus ultrasound. They're really practicing. They go to the head of the bed, they put it in the middle of the neck, direct it upward, suture it down, and they used ultrasound to puncture the vein. It's really like 1969 plus ultrasound. It's like, yeah. and then like, hey, hey, we have an infection problem. You know, like, yeah, hey, strange that, you know, strange. What have you so, seen, Jack, Shell? I agree with Jack, but I think it's broader. Um, Jack took aim at the medical staff and the residents. But I think there's a much broader concern about who's doing vascular access and what's their training throughout the, the continuum of care, starting starting pre-hospital through everything else. So Yes, what you're seeing with residents, I think, is not completely Good. unusual. But uh, let me interrupt. I'm not going after the resident. It's that they're unsupervised. It's not, uh, I am not, where our job is not to blame the residents, to train the resident. But go ahead, you oh, go. That's, that's, that's beautiful. And, and that's what we're addressing right now with pre licensure. And I know Judy can go on this forever, but with the PIV curriculum, because that same practice is being echoed in healthcare around the world right now with untrained, unsupervised staff accessing veins and doing the best they can with whatever tools they can find. So I love it because that is a tie-in to a really big initiative with us at AVA right now, which is standardizing the education and the expectation before anyone even starts touching a patient. And that starts in pre-licensure. The novices should not be trained by novice plus. Oh, God, no. You're right. The novices have to be trained by experts. You know, like everything that flows after that, if you don't have proper training, you know, is what you get. Shall I go on to the number two finding? Yes, please. What's your number two? Right. Number two finding is now, Clabsy is a surrogate for the quality of vascular access in general. It's a really good um, surrogate for that. I mean, it's not just Clabsy. It's your like you have a clapsy problem. You have a vascular access program problem, or you know what I mean. Like I think there's a strong correlation between the two, right? Hospitals that want to improve their clapsy. This is Jack Ledun number two on the list of four. Hospitals that want to improve their clapsy always start by trying to fix care and maintenance. It's uniform. Like, oh, we try, you know, we changed the dressing. Uh, we, did, we did this, you know, it's, it, it's care and maintenance. And do you know why? Do you know why they blame care and maintenance? Because the bacteremia is picked up on day five. Oh, hey, no anesthesiologist in the world has ever accepted responsibility for a collapse because it's, like, it's not related to the insertion because it came in day five. But if you put that thing in a way that the dressing won't stay intact and the nurse can't handle it, then it is on you. It is an insertion-related problem. These things are related. Like, that's the part I would say my thing is the relationship between the insertion and the care and maintenance. If you start by blaming care and maintenance, now another thing is blaming care and maintenance is blaming the nursing staff. They don't say that. The hospitals don't. They're not naive enough to say that, you know what I mean, to get the nurses all riled up. But when you're blaming care and maintenance, you're blaming uh, the nursing staff. I want to say Shall two we? things to that, Jack, if I may. 
Care and maintenance absolutely comes up a lot, but I hope before anyone goes to care and maintenance, they're doing an evaluation and investigation of the case and that there's something pointing them there. Because certainly, yes, if we look at intraluminal versus extraluminal routes of infection, there's going to be a time when we're saying it is more likely care and maintenance. But I take what you said um, as an absolute truth and something that is often ignored, that even though it is not an insertion technique related infection, it still can be insert-er driven. If you've if you've made a, a poor site selection, as you've talked about, if you've if you've placed it in a manner that it can't be secured and stabilized and dressed, or if you put in three yeah. lumens when you only need one, you're still part we'll get of the to that. problem. We'll get, that's, that, that's, that's number three. Oh my so number goodness. Three on my, so number three on my list is many institutions have one central venous catheter. It's usually a triple lumen, 20 centimeter yep. catheter. That's the only one in the institution. So I'm going to let my infection preventionist, molecular biologist talk to what happened, you know, what is the infection prevention ramifications of only having one catheter? And Shelly just, you know, talked about the, the lumens. Well, my concern with that is not having the right device for the patient's needs, right? You're making a guess based on what you have available to you. And you're not you're not going to optimize what the patient needs. If we're putting in more lumens, we're requiring right. more care yeah. and maintenance, more medication, greater risk of DVT, greater risk of infection and nursing now, time. So it's- Yes, it, it plays back to nobody's in charge. So you know what happens? Purchasing becomes in charge. You know what I mean? Infection prevention- wants more catheters. Dr. Ledun wants more catheters, but nobody's in charge. So purchasing just gets that one catheter. Nobody in the institution knows enough to that they need single, double, triple. They need the patients as I usually the patients come in different sizes. And yeah, so what if you get the catheter. big boy in? What if you get the big boy and have like, to go to the left? So, so there's another ramification to it. They don't really care about tip location. Because the point, the case you're bringing up, which goes on in every hospital every day, they can't get it there. Right. So like, so it tells you that the infection prevention ramifications of having more lumens than you need is there. The um, not being able to get it at the, at the cavoatrial junction is they don't really care about this stuff, you know? So like purchasing has become in charge. I think we should start hanging clabsies on the purchasing department and see what and see what happens you know but you know so you can get another is, yeah you can get another centimeter and a half if you have it though jack oh oh, no. de- oh definitely definitely and if, like if you and you can even indent the skin a little bit i mean you can right? put your, you can get the skin in those big people well, down and maybe a, skin? maybe a centimeter well can we if you're gonna make a decision sure. here this is not an actual recommendation for safe patient no. care no, that no was but they don't care. So, it te- so I mean, yeah. these are red flags. When I go into, into an institution and they only have one catheter, it tells me they don't really care about the tip, where the tip is. They'll tell you cavoatrial junction because they memorize it, but they don't live it. If you only have one catheter, they're not living that the catheter has to be in the right spot because a lot of times, Judy, in the case you mentioned, it'll be pointing into the wall, you know, of the SVC, the yeah. top where the brachiocephalics come together. All right. So number one, nobody's in charge of vascular access. And there's a whole cascade that comes from that. Number two, they, they always start with blaming care and maintenance for, to fix their collapsing problem. And sometimes the light bulb will go off like, Hey, Hey, Bozo, would you put it in like that for? Like until you, like you have to fix insertion first. 
if you want to impact your infection rate. So the third thing is that they only have one catheter and it's just a red flag that, that they're behind the times, 10 years, even 20 years, right? Shall I go to number four? I would love to number four. Or Shelly, do you have something? Uh, on? Yeah, I actually, I have a question, Jack, because I think the, the concept of who's in charge of vascular access, particularly on the medical side of things, where we have teams in, in many programs who aren't yet able to place all of their own devices for a number of reasons. Yeah. And, yes. and you've had an opportunity, I think, to be a medical director over a variety of different programs in the absence of someone having a jack, is there a service that you feel is a good target for people to start to work with, to have those conversations with their medical staff, even if someone is not the title of medical director of vascular access? But where would you have people start if they're if they're faced with that very basic but omnipresent challenge in their organization? The only two systems that I've seen that work or that I like are, number one is a strong director of vascular access that can put in, you know, the peripherals and the centrals. And the second one is a strong nursing vascular access team that wants to move into the centrals. And they're not mutually exclusive, but those are the only two systems I've seen that really get to modern practice where you'd have more than one device you wouldn't be blaming care and maintenance if the insertion's a problem. Like those are the only two systems. One is a strong director of vascular access. And I'm, I'm not saying what his degree is or what you know his or her you know credentials are. And the other one is like when the um they have a great skill set from the peripheral and they can move into the central and they know this stuff. They've gone to the AVA conferences. When I taught like you know, the AVA conference, the national, and also the the networks, there's nothing like that for physicians. There's no, there's really no graduate medical education in this thing for physicians. It's really, it's really bad. So Shelly, go back to your, so where would you start? I think that it's it's a very, it's a very interesting question. And so we have a strong nursing team that wants to improve vascular access in their hospital and either take on the centrals or just improve things in general. So they have to find it's different in different hospitals. Sometimes it's pulmonary critical care. Sometimes it's surgery. I mean, IR, um, I don't like IR because they don't, you know, they're stuck down in the, I mean, I love them. I've learned a lot from IRs and, um, you know, I don't agree with, they don't agree with me about the axillary vein. So, you know, it's tough, you know, tough. I think Mary you know, Constantino think it, agrees spot on. Well, with me and Trevor Oh yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think Mary Constantino's got Trevor believe everything I have to say about vascular access, pretty much, uh, unless I got it wrong, unless I got that those nah. debates wrong. You know, so you have to find your guy, you have to find your person that's interested, knows something about vascular access, and is willing to go to bat for you over the issues. Does that answer your question, or Shelley? The one thing I would say is, you said there's not a place for these docs to go. I, I would say right. there it is. Yes. Hello. Yeah, no. Um, but, our network, so, need, we need to do a better job, though, of reaching out, welcoming, and picking topics and speakers who can address yeah. that. And so I think they help. won't even show, but that's the but that's what you can do. That's what you can do. You can have like um, a program that's in their sphere that they would be interested in and then hope that they would show up. I mean, many How times. How did we get you? 
How did you get so entrenched with us? I got a copy of the uh, journal at work. You know, my ma- it showed up and I'm, I'm leafing through the, the Java. It, was, it had a different name back then. And um, I'm looking, I'm leafing through and I'm going, boy, this sounds a lot like what I do, you know? So instead of putting it down, I got to a thing where, you know, join the society. So if, if I put the magazine down, I would have never found it again, you know, because I don't keep my office that neat. When I joined, I saw a thing like, hey, um, you know, submit your ideas for our conference, you know. So I submit my idea. Next thing, a lady named Darcy calls me up, you know, (laughs) and says, you know, well, you know, you got to do, can you do another topic the next day? I go, well, you know, it's probably the same topic. Yeah. Anyway, that's how I got, somebody sent me the, somehow I was on a mailing list and somebody sent me the journal and like. How lucky for us. That's How lucky for history. me. It, it changed the trajectory of my career. Getting that thing in the mail, it changed the trajectory. You know what I mean? Because I always viewed myself as like a vascular access orphan with an ultrasound machine. You know, I didn't know there were other people like me. I didn't know that. Then when you I came to tribe. Ava, yep. I met but my tribe. And it was- isn't, isn't that the story we all have? I mean, many of us that same way, uh, coming to our first uh, Ava and going, oh my goodness, I have found my people. Right. I didn't know you were out here and um, to be embraced and supported and and find like-minded folks just passionate about this. My first one was a show. It was, mine was a show. You Your know first I mean? one? Like, yeah. Yeah. It was like, it wasn't love. It, it, it wasn't what it, you know, it was like, who who's this guy? You know, it was a lot of <laughs> That's amazing. um, Hey guys, I'm going to leave you at the edge of your seats for a moment while we hear a word from our sponsor, Covalon. This scenario is about Emily. She's a NICU nurse. The number of patients she oversees is higher than ever. She's already feeling burnt out and the rise of Clopsy is not helping her stress. Her tiny patients constantly tug at their IV lines and drool on the connections, not to mention the occasional contact with a dirty diaper. Emily can't monitor her patients 24-7, but the stakes of even a single clabsy are very high. Then, Emily's unit started using Valgard, the world's only transparent vascular access line-to-line connection barrier with quick release. Now she has some peace of mind knowing that her little one's line connections are protected from external contaminants when she's not around. And because Valgard is transparent and has a quick-release pull strip for easy removal, she can access the lines when she needs to. Do you want that peace of mind with your patients? Protect your catheter hubs and line-to-line connections with Valgard. Learn more at covalon.com backslash clabsy. That's covalon.com backslash clabsy. Or visit Covalon at this year's annual AVA conference at booth 607. Now back to the show. All right, number four. Okay, number four. Number four. Number one is nobody's in charge. I mean, like, whatever you get after that is what you get when nobody's in charge. Number two is they always start by blaming care and maintenance. And, you know, people people listening to this, you know, tell me yes, tell me no. The third thing is um, they only have one gatherer. Like these are red flags. The fourth thing is the acute hemodialysis catheters always have the worst infection record. They do. And 
The reason for that is the way they're inserted. They put it in poorly, like in the middle of the neck, directed up, but then it's got these curved tips instead of a curved body. It's curved tips to keep it out of your ear canal. It's to keep this out of your auditory canal. But then the, <laughs> like not, not one time in the history of planet Earth has this thing, the dressing stayed intact if you put this thing in and direct it upward. But but to, to fix it, this is lipstick on a pig. Having curved tips like this, this is lipstick on a pig to me. Those are the four things that I find routinely when I go to an institution. And, and people listening to this, tell me if I got it wrong. I don't think tell you me if I made, Tell me if I made it up. You know, you know the two. other thing that really frustrates me, I think um, IOs are vastly underutilized. You yeah, see yeah, all these really crappy but, central lines being going in the groin during a, a code situation. And it's usually a, a junior burger trying to do it because they need their practice. It's terrible, terrible practice. Well, McKella dealt with it. McKella at Johns Hopkins, you know, they, they took the central line kids out of the, out of the car. Brilliant. It's you can brilliant. only, yeah. You, I mean, like, Hey, I've done many lines in that circumstance when somebody's crunching on the chest. It's not a happy situation. You know what I mean? Not for it's, anybody. It's fraught with, it's fraught with, bad results. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, the intraosseous is certainly the answer to that. My mission to, to fix those four things. Like when you bring me, if I go into a hospital, those are the things that are either going to get fixed or I'm going to go out. One of us is going to go out crying. So I'm going to change gears just ever so slightly. I want to talk about skin injuries and dressings. So we've got all these fragile skin folks out there. They're either prednisone skins, they're just older, fragile skins. and fragile skins. That sounds odd. They're, they're older folks with fragile skin and we have a really hard time. One, keeping a dressing on them, but well, two, if we get the, keep the dressing down, we can't get it off without ripping their skin off with it. And what kind of strategies do you think we could use for some of these patients that we can keep a dressing down, not rip their skin off and also not create a, uh, an infection based on predisposition for skin tears. What do you think? So in my unique role, which I always need to remind people, I am not a direct care provider. I'm an epidemiologist who studies this ad nauseum. But with that, with all of our work on dressings, we involved our wound nurses from day one when we began okay. trying to work on improving it. So a lot of what we learned and did was at the direct guidance and involvement of them. But what I've learned through through my rounds and our studies is our practices, like so many others, really stand for improvement. And so technique, low and slow, there should never be a ripping. And I think we get frustrated and we go fast and we right. have become strong, strong advocates of adhesive removers. There's a lot of different options out there, sure. but use them, use them liberally with, with any time we have adhesive products. And as we've looked to improve our dressing integrity, it's coupled with liberal use of adhesive removers for our patients and realizing that our current practice of continually having dressings removed and replaced is also stripping the skin further and creating further concerns for our patients than finding a way to keep that dressing on as long as possible. Doctor? Is there a way to keep adhesive products from going on in the first place or, you know, like in other words, wrap them with, you know, Colban or a wrapping, you know, like gall, like just keep adhesive. You can see those skin. It's purple. There's, right. blood, you know, 
Yeah. You know, there's hematoma, like there's ecchymosis there many times. Is there a way that we can keep adhesives off of those patients? So I was to say clinically, obviously, it's not something I can I can offer a suggestion on. I, I know people have done exactly what it is that you're suggesting, Jack. My concern is always out of sight, out of mind. And when we look at the frequency that these devices need to be assessed, and it's a laying on in the hands of inspection of the site, when they're all wrapped up, and for good reasons, they're wrapped to keep it on, making sure that the staff caring for that device are still doing a thorough and frequent assessment so that we're not exchanging one risk for another. So that's my, that's my caution when we go to completely covering the site with a wrap like that. Yeah, I mean, I say I I agree. I agree with Shelly. I think essentially all adhesives should be removed with a solvent, with an adhesive remover. I mean, like for my family, you know, I've you know, and I've taken off so many dressings, and you know, I've got one where, you know, I took off the skin with it. It's like the, you know, it was a, a stat lock, and the skin comes off. Now there's a stat lock missing skin oh, underneath yeah. it. You know what I mean? So I think I try to blame somebody else, but I'm sure it was me that did it. You know? <laughs> we always try to. But then I think, Jack, back to your original point you made earlier about really poorly inserted lines. That's part of the issue we have with some of our dressings, that we have to tack them down so much because they're pointing towards the sky. But that is the problem to me. To me, that is the problem. And then like, and then you get to, well, look, the care and maintenance, the, the bacteria came on day five, like that. It's all related. It's, yeah, it's all, it is. It's, it's all related. It starts like, and I, you know, and I say, if you want to fix the problems in, in your institution, fix insertion first. You know, I, I listen, I was at the INS, I was at the INS in June and um, there's a lady from a, uh, Providence system in the Northwest, Becca Bartles. And uh, she's um, an epidemiologist, PhD, you know, and they have a SWAT team. They have a SWAT team. So they, what they did, like, so they have a 54 hospital system and they would send the, the, the SWAT team, which is like four or five nurses, you know, um, four or five infection preventionist epidemiologists to go to the hospital that had the worst record of, of CLABSI during COVID. And they had some really, you know, pretty poor results. And they looked at, they looked at stuff. And I was impressed at the stuff they look at. So stuff they looked at were like no clip form, education suffered. They went in the closets and saw that the closet, you know, the supply closets were not standardized. They looked at, um, you know, travelers, nurse to patient ratio. I mean, they looked at 50 things. And I said to her, I said, look, I do the same kind of thing that you do. I go and look at what they're doing. I don't do it in your level of sophistication. Don't get me wrong. But I said, yeah, like if you if you fix the supply closet, if you standardize the supply closet, but you didn't fix insertion. <laughs> like, like, I'm sorry. You know, the clip form. Hey, fix it. Like, in other words, all those things. They're not equal. They don't have equal importance. You know me. I, I can get my point across when I get you on the phone. You know, I, they haven't brought me into Providence yet, but the 50 things she was talking about, they're not all of equal import. Like sure. fix insertion first. Like if you got the, if you got a doctor that knows how to put in a line properly, great. Those are like that goes a long way toward preventing an infection. You know what I mean? Like do the clip, do the nurse patient ratio, do all that stuff. 
like, but if you don't fix, if you don't fix the insertion, you're not going to, I don't see how you get your bang for your buck. So Jack, I don't disagree with you. I mean, if, if you don't do a proper insertion, nothing else matters, right? Any of the. It matters, but not, it matters. No, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's that it's not, that's, I don't like your phrasing. So so noted. However, a completely botched insertion cannot be fixed with optimal no. care and maintenance. That's no. that's all. No, exactly. That, yes. Well so said. I, I, I think yes. we're on, I think we're on the same the same team here. But I also think you and I are both big proponents of shoe leather epidemiology, bedside rounding, going to the gemba, whatever you want to call it, because while I would agree with the things you said are are pretty universal. When we go out and we round at the bedside, I really hope that folks listening to this take the time to go and learn what is going on in their organizations with their staff, because the staff they have today may not be the staff they had six months ago, let alone the staff they had four years ago. And the practices that have crept in over the last three years, making assumptions, because this is what we always find. I just really hope that the education and the interventions that are taking place are being driven by what's really happening today in the organizations. And you can't get that from a chart review and you can't get that no. from asking a manager or a vice president. It's right. observing exactly. the episodes of care while they happen. Now, which is fine. back to po- back to point number one. If you have a strong, if you have a strong like director, he can, his main job is to do the training. His main job, of the, he has to be, you know, become an expert at vascular access, but he has to train the people. Like these things, these things get filtered out by having somebody that's in charge that knows what they're talking about, or it has the potential to get filtered out. To your point too, though, that director, whoever's doing the training has to be an expert. Because if I deem you competent, I, right. and I'm an expert, that's one thing, but you're a, you're someone yeah. that has limited experience saying someone else is competent. Right. You're never going to get where you want to go. Well, but to that's that point, actually- to that point, I'm just going to, you know, cause you're pushing my buttons to that point. There are many people in the country that have the title director of vascular access, but it's the fifth duty. Number one, they do a little general surgery, they do a little trauma, do some critical care, do like uh, IV nutrition. And Oh, by the way, you're the director of vascular access. You know what I mean? Like they don't like, like for me, I was director of vascular access and I did other things when I had availability after that. But I, but there are a lot of people that have this title. Maybe they get a small stipend, but they're not really, they're not truly a modern director of vascular access. So I was just going to echo what you were saying about, and I think it, it was in the previous version of the standards. I think it's still there that the people doing competencies need to be competent themselves. Yes. And I think as we look at what's going on in our organizations today, that is not, not only not always, but often not the case that these are assumed or presumed to be just basic skills that everyone has. And we know that they're not. So looking at our initial competency processes and looking at our ongoing competencies, which have to be driven by understanding the quality improvement needs of the organization, it's not just going back and changing and dressing again, if that's not what's leading your your failures or your complications. So establishing that baseline competency and ensuring that the rubrics and the right. all the training and all the observations are actually 
valid and and signed off by someone who who has the skill set to do it. The and that's Ace by Ava. Look at us. We're oh, promoting look at that. product, <laughs> which is assessing competency by expert. You know, Shelly and Jack, there's a huge difference between being competent and being an expert in this procedure. You know, there's, there's so much. And then right back to the first thing that I wanted to talk about was really about dressings and dressing adherence that I know we've gone around the, the entire mulberry bush as it would be, but experts in our field would, it, when you have a patient that is, they're allergic to adhesives and you can't use your traditional dressings or they have skin breakdown already or they're a burn patient or whatever, there's a lot of quivers that we can go to. We can pull out a new arrow anytime and shoot with that. They don't like immerse themselves in vascular access. They don't think down an algorithm of options. Like if I get a patient that I've had a patient that was allergic to everything. He couldn't, I couldn't use CHG. He was allergic to um, the adhesive dressings. And I found a dressing that actually worked for him that I could actually use an adhesive base, no silicone base dressing real gentle that was down the algorithm it was my traditional dressing then it was the iv 3000 and and then it you know i went down to another high level dressing those are the things that you know it, we we talk about what expertise and experts can do that even though it's not inserting the line it's maintaining or helping to care for that line and those are the thought processes that we need to be able to have Hey guys, we're going to take another quick break and hear from our sponsor today from Covalon. Are you tired of cringeworthy dressing removals? Your patients are already going through a lot, and so are you. Protecting vascular access sites does not need to be painful. IV Clear is the world's only dual antimicrobial clear silicone securement dressing. Dual antimicrobials in this gentle silicone adhesive dressing offer infection prevention throughout the entire surface of the dressing while protecting your patient's skin integrity. Take the pain out of dressing changes. Heal without hurt and try IV Clear for yourself today. Learn more at covalon.com backslash gentle. Again, C-O-V-A-L-O-N.com backslash gentle. And if you're at this year's AVA conference, stop on by at booth 607. Now, let's go back to the show. Jack, is there something else you want to add to this? I don't have much to say <laughs> beyond. I don't have much to say on this point. I, 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 do, I do have another point I want to, I want to bring up. Please do. It's very clear based on common sense um, motion that the chest is the site is the best exit site for these catheters. It's, you know, it's, it's really not disputed that that's where these catheters, you know, belong. You know, there are three ways to do it. You know, number one is puncture vein on the chest. When you use ultrasound, the name of that vein is the axillary vein. Why don't people, critical cares and others, use the, che- use the chest site? It's a deeper, steeper approach oftentimes, and they don't know it's there. They think they've learned all their life. So they're scared of pneumothorax. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. not as easy like, as the superficial IJ. No, no. It, it's not as easy until you learn how to do it. And then it becomes Correct. pretty It comes pretty easy. Why are people scared of pneumothorax? Like if you compare, like Clabsy, the mortality is 12 to 25% in all the studies. 
Pneumothorax, like pneumothorax does not compare to CLABSI as a medical issue. Why are people scared of CLABSI? Why are inserters, that, why are they scared, scared of, of pneumos? Pneumos. Why are they scared? Thank you. Why are they scared of pneumo? I'll tell They're, you. I'm they don't want to drop a lung. And it's embarrassing, the, probably. The, the pneumo is the drop lung. Uh, embarrassing. It's attributable to them. Absolutely. Like the CLABSI, the CLABSI, hey, anesthesia wasn't me, wasn't me. There's no ducking who they're scared. It's attributable to them. So like they're not, they're not going to do it. I mean, like, like, and another thing is if you know how to put it in a chest tube, you know, why should you be scared of, of pneumothorax? I mean, people are scared of the wrong thing. They should be scared of collapsing, but they're scared of pneumothorax. Next thing they're putting up in the neck with a dressing on the mandible. I have one patient with a dressing on the earlobe. I'm going to show it at this year's AVA conference. And like, it's a perfect dressing. If I ever have a central line and I need a dressing on my earlobe, I want that person to do it. There's no bleed. It goes around to the front, to the back. It looks, it's perfect. The dressing's on the earlobe. I'm going, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, you know, there's more wrong with it than that. But, um, you know. The ironic thing about going axillary is you can actually see the lung and the vein at the same time. And you don't, I mean, there's clearance. You've got room. It's I. It's just craziness why people are pushing against axillary or or don't I, know about it. Well, guys, yeah. this this has been amazing. I can't, can't wait to see you at Minneapolis Convention Center for Ava Scientific Meeting. Thank you so much for being here today. Always a pleasure, Judy. Thanks so much for the invitation. My pleasure. Everybody, test for COVID before you come. None of us want it. <laughs> Bye, y'all. <laughs> can't wait to see you in Minneapolis. Travel safe, everybody. Yeah. We appreciate hey, so we, much. We love, the, we love the work you do, Judy. Yeah, always, Thank you. Judy. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank All you. Right. Super fun. Bye. You can see the entire AVA calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. Don't miss Facebook Fridays, where we are live at noon Eastern time each week. Toss us a question or give us a like. We're on all the social media platforms. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music. Now here comes the legal stuff. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the host, our guests, our sponsors and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any information we've presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. 
no part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without the prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.